0: Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We're going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question and answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. The Catechism is wrapping up uh, the Lord's Supper and the significance of the Lord's Table. And when we come to the Lord's Supper, it's important that we want to emphasize that we're not saying the Lord's Supper is merely some empty memorial feast where we just kind of think about the sentimentality of Christ. We want to say we are nourished as Christ feeds us by the elements, or by His Spirit, Uh, through the elements. As the elements feed our mouth, so the Spirit feeds the mouth of our soul. And we also want to be careful that we don't want to say that the Lord's Supper is done in such a way that the bread and wine become the body of Christ, like we see with Rome, or as Lutherans would say, that Christ is in, with, and under the bread. Uh, And so He's not really transforming the bread, but He's in, with, and under uh, the elements. And so in terms of the Lord's Supper, uh, the focus that that we find this time is that it's really driving home the reality that, A, we are not uh, celebrating the Mass, and it uses very strong language with the Mass, question and answer 80, if you're familiar, with the history of the Heidelberg Catechism is a bit of a controversial question and answer, it's pretty cutting, Uh, I, I don't think it's necessarily problematic, I think it's still very accurate, so hopefully we'll see this evening. Uh, But also, uh, the Lord's Supper is dealing with who can come to this table, where, again, this can be put in a place where we get so terrified of this uh, self-examination that we almost fear the sacrament and fail to understand our call is to fear God, not the Lord's Supper. And so when we look at this, we're going to be asking, basically, who is the one who can come to this table if it's not just merely a sentimental feast? Uh, How do we know if we're worthy to come to the Lord's table? Uh, Maybe we're so wicked and so perverted that we shouldn't be coming. We don't know. I mean, we are sinners. We struggle with sin. And so as we look at this, we'll see first what is different between the Lord's Supper and the Mass, question and answer 80. Uh, We're also going to see, as we look at this, um, who can come to the table and what about the hypocrites? What what does that mean? What is the Catechism warning us against? And so let's begin with what is different. Now we hear this language of the Mass, uh, as I mentioned, question answer 80, uh, doesn't really beat around the bush a whole lot. Where it says, you know, at the end of it, it, says, thus the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. Not uh, much wiggle room there is being quite clear as to what we think of the Mass. And so why do we use such language? Well, going through the First and Second Vatican, their ruling in Trent, if if you read what they say, um, the Roman Catholics would say, well, we believe it's a Eucharistic sacrifice. So if you interact with a Roman Catholic, they'll say, well, we believe it's a Eucharistic sacrifice. We say, well, what does that mean? we might be tempted to latch on to Eucharist and say, well, this is a problem. Uh, But Eucharist is simply from the words of institution. For instance, in Luke 22, verse 17, uh, we have there where when he had given thanks, the Greek is Eucharisto, which is a Eucharist, uh, basically is a root of it. All that means is Thanksgiving, a Thanksgiving meal. That's the intention here. And so, When Roman Catholics or Anglicans or uh, whatever tradition uses the language of of Eucharist, that's not necessarily problematic language. It comes right from the words of institution. But where it becomes a problem is where the Roman Catholics start defining the Mass. Now, the Mass just simply means dismissal. It means sent out. Uh, It comes from Latin missa. So this language is... On the one hand, it's us being sent out. So you might hear this and say, wow, it's great. It's We're being sent out into the world. What, what a wonderful thing. But when you really drill down and, and you start reading in like the Catholic encyclopedia and, and different sources from Roman Catholicism, it, it's more than just us being sent out. I mean, if that's all the mass meant, we could talk about our worship being the mass, right? I mean, there's Nothing fundamentally problematic about saying, well, we're sent out into the world to live out the gospel. We say, great, that's what we're called to do as Christians. But that's not what is going on in the Mass. Because what the Roman Catholics will say with this term Mass or Missa, Mass going out, is it is also Christ, when he is sacrificed, is going out and back into heaven. So when they use this language of a Eucharistic sacrifice, they say, oh, well, maybe they're just using language that's sacramental and and maybe we're misunderstanding them. Well, you start drilling down more into Roman Catholic theology, and as you dig down into this, they're saying, well, actually, the Mass will make sacrifice for venial sins. So, So the Mass actually has a sacrificial element. So again, the mortal and venial sins. Venial sins basically means inconsequential. Uh, so these are, are light sins you may commit. You know, sins that aren't as severe. Mortal sins are the big ones. Uh, these are the ones that, that take a lot of work to overcome, which again, when Roman Catholics tell me about that, they say, well, there's, there's penance, there's stuff we can do for mortal sins. It doesn't seem like they're very mortal if we can do stuff to atone for it. Uh, now, Catholics may differ as to what can be done, what's not done, and the implications of that. But nevertheless, in terms of the Mass, they do believe that the Mass will cover venial sins. Now, they also want to say, uh, in terms when you get into Vatican, and where they've revised uh, the language of the Mass in the Eucharistic sacrifice, a Roman Catholic will say, well... We don't see this in the sense of a re-sacrificing of Christ in the sense that it duplicates his work. It's the one-time sacrifice of Christ, but he's re-sacrificed again before us. Not that this is cumulative in the sense that the more times he's sacrificed, the more effective it is, but he's still sacrificed in the Eucharist. And so it almost becomes, if you're familiar with the movie Princess Bride, The Battle of Wits, where the man in the masses truly have a dizzying intellect. When you start going through these rulings, that's kind of where you're going. Like, well, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And so digging down deeper, I found a a contemporary Roman Catholic source. So I want to know, well, how much have they shifted on this? How much have they moved? If you really push a Roman Catholic on this, would they say, well, we've repented from question answer 80 so I found a resource, and it's actually uh, the United States Conference of Bishops. So this is contemporary, this is something they've put out recently. So this is not Trent, this is not ancient history by any means. It's, it's on their webpage, and this is their statement. So this is the bishops of the Roman Catholic Church putting this together regarding the Mass. And I'm going to read their words. These are not my words, these are their words. They say, in celebration of the Eucharist, bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and the instrumentality of the priest. The whole Christ is truly present body, blood, soul, and divinity under the appearances of bread and wine. The glorified Christ who rose from the dead, this is what the church means. When she speaks of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So, when you look at this statement, it's quite evident that what question answer 80 says is still relevant. Uh, when they talk about a Eucharistic sacrifice, they're still saying Christ is sacrificed. When they say that the, the Mass can take away from the venial, uh, less serious, or inconsequential sins, there's something still being transmitted in the Mass that's not tied to the one-time sacrifice of Christ. So if you notice in question answer 80, it wants us to understand that the Lord's Supper is that feasting in the one-time sacrifice of Christ. So we're not saying Christ is sacramentally sacrificed. We're not saying he's sacrificed before our eyes. We're saying that this is a picture, a reminder, a, 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 a nourishment that comes through the Spirit from the one time sacrifice of Christ. If you take nothing else from the sermon this evening, just remember that is based on the one time sacrifice of Christ. So, then dealing with the church in Corinth and what Paul is going on here. When Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and a lot of times when we hear of this discern the body and blood, We start getting really worried. Can I come to the Lord's Supper? Am I worried? Am I holy enough? Well, the answer is you're not holy enough. That's why we have the Lord's Supper. We need Christ. We need his sacrifice. We need to understand what is the context in Corinth. Even my kids repeated the other day, context, 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 kind of made me chuckle. But that's the essence of understanding what's going on in the scripture. What is the context of the Lord's Supper? Well, we have an insight into Corinth when we start at 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, God is one who's upset with the Corinthian church. And why is he upset with the Corinthian church? Well, it seems whatever is going on in the Lord's Supper is not a celebration of the Lord's Supper. Uh, so the Apostle Paul makes this reference to uh, the individuals coming together and basically partaking of idolatry. Uh, He wants us to understand, 1 Corinthians 10, 18, that when the priest uh, would make the sacrifice, that he would eat of a portion of the sacrifice, identifying himself with the sacrifice. We've covered this from Hebrews. Uh, It's one of the sin offerings that we find in Leviticus that Paul's referring back to. And what that does is that establishes a, a unity or a solidarity between the priest and the animal. The priest should be upon the altar. That's what it's communicating. Animal gave its life in the place of the priest. The priest is one who can let out a breath of fresh air. Or whoever brings the offering for the priest to sacrifice, there's a breath of fresh air. I should be upon that altar, but I'm not. That's the picture there. But going on then in verse 19 of chapter 10, the apostle Paul wants to say, listen, is the food really that significant? Well, really, the, the food's rather inconsequential, right? It's, it's food. That's what it is. And so Paul says it's, it's not a fundamental problem with the food. It's a problem with the attitude. And so as the Corinthian church comes together and as they're uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper, he's saying, you're not celebrating the Lord's Supper. You're, you're celebrating a pagan feast, basically. You're making this a feast about yourself as a community, not about the Lord. And so the Apostle Paul appeals to Israel and basically eating food sacrificed to a false god. And he's saying, listen, it's not really the food that's the problem. It's the fellowship, right? I mean, that's what food communicates. When you invite people over, you have a Thanksgiving meal. We, we think about the significance of that. You have your family together, right? You you have friends and family. You, you come together. You're, you're celebrating this feast Together, these are the ones you fellowship with, and so the point Paul's making is when you're fellowshiping with false gods and you're sitting down to have a meal with them, the food's not really the issue; it's the fundamental desire. And he's saying right now the desire that's manifested in Corinth is they're dining with false gods, and so the Apostle Paul gives us warning in verse twenty-two of chapter ten. Uh, basically citing from Deuteronomy 32 21 that you really want to provoke the Lord to anger Uh, think about the history of Israel didn't end well for them and so Paul's saying think about your actions as you come together to the Lord's Supper so in chapter 10 we, we don't really have the full picture of what's going on but what Paul's presenting at least from most likely Chloe's report that we read about in the Uh, first chapter of corinthians that chloe's reported to me there's divisions among you so it implies that chloe said hey there's some stuff going on in this church that's not healthy this is a public thing so when, when you come to the lord's supper at corinth there's something very public and problematic that's going on and i think that's an important thing to note when paul drives home this discerning it's not I struggle with sins and I don't want to minimize sin because, yes, we are called to put off sin. Any sin can become severe, whatever we struggle with, if we're not battling against it. So I'm 100% against sin, just to be clear. Um, But the call is that we continue to fight against this sin. And what's going on in Corinth is there's not a public demonstration that the congregation cares a whole lot about their sin. That's the fundamental problem. And so Paul is saying when you come together to the Lord's Supper, you're basically dining with demons. So it's important to understand that first off. It's not that the sacrifice or the Lord's Supper is doing something like the Mass. It's rather the attitude, where, where they're identifying themselves, where they're communing. Uh, their hearts are not tuned in to the Lord. Their hearts are tuned in to false gods. And Paul is saying, be careful. It's a very dangerous place. So going on then, we make this transition then to to 81. Who's allowed to come to this meal? Well, uh, 81 tells us people who are displeased with themselves, and this isn't just self-loathing, it's not just that we're called to hate ourselves or see ourselves as rotten, miserable people, and that's the fundamental call of the gospel, just beat yourself down more and have no hope. No, the catechism qualifies it because of our sins. So we understand the dignity of man, we understand we are redeemed in Christ, but we're displeased with our sins. We we, we don't want to to pursue these sins, we don't want to live in these sins, we're we're discouraged. You know, Proverbs has that picture that's not a very nice picture, like a dog returning to its vomit. I mean, it's just grotesque. But the reality is, this is who we are as struggling sinners, and that's humbling. And that's the intention to, to put that out there, it's humbling. Uh, we are a people who need the Lord. And so we're displeased with our sins, but also we're turning to something. So it's not just turning away or, or hating something. We're turning to Christ. And so the Lord's Supper is its reminding us of that one-time work of Christ. It's telling us a solution for sin. It is Christ. And so we are to exercise our faith in Christ. Notice, and it goes on. We believe in the one-time work of Christ. So notice how the Catechism drives home one-time work of Christ. It's not that Christ needs to be re-sacrificed. One-time work of Christ is sufficient to cover our sins. We're called to believe this, trust in it, walk in it. Going on then in terms of our needing redemption, that the call is that we understand that our faith is actually strengthened. And so this is the understanding of our faith. It's not just take hold of Christ, one and done, it's over, it's finished. But the taking hold of Christ and walking by faith means that this faith is continually growing. It's growing in conviction. It's growing in the assurance of Christ's work. It's, It's continually submitting to him. I'm wanting to live more and more in him. And so as my faith is strengthened, It means that I'm desiring to conform to his will, calling me away from myself, calling me to rest in Christ, calling me to walk by the power of his spirit. That's what the catechism is driving home. So as we hear that, and and we hear the Apostle Paul in in this exhortation for us to, to know that we're sinners, to know that we need Christ. This means we need to be of an age and an understanding where we can truly discern what it means to be a sinner and of an age where we can truly discern or judge what it means to be in Christ. We, we need to be able to tell what is sinful, what's not sinful. Obviously, we, we grow in this as the Spirit convicts us of more things going on in our lives, uh, more places where we need to grow. Uh, obviously, we, we grow in this. But we need to have a basic understanding of this discernment and what it means to be in Christ. So going on then, how do we discern the truth of the supper? Well, if we look at verse 17, Paul says, I do not commend you. So when when Paul says, I, I do not commend you in this, he's picking up with the reality that we are those who struggle. We are those who need grace. Uh, we are those who truly are, are <laughs> Disappointing the Apostle Paul is a point here. And so in in verse 2, he tells us that I commend you uh, to remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. So in terms of conducting themselves, uh, doing well would be remembering the Apostle Paul's teaching. Going on, skipping down to verse 17, not doing well and, and receiving a rebuke from the Apostle is not remembering the apostles' teaching. And so that's the contrast that Paul is doing here in terms of the church. But why is it that Paul wouldn't commend them, and what are they forsaking in terms of the traditions and uh, the words that Paul has given to them? Well, in terms of not commending them, we find that there's a manifestation of these divisions, as he says in verse 18. So it's again probably Chloe's report as we hear in the beginning. And as there's factions, he, he points out how, how horrible this is. And, and it's important to understand what's going on in the Corinthian church. I, I don't think Paul's being rhetorical. I, I don't think he's laying out a hypothetical. I think he's laying out what's honestly been reported. Uh, that there are some who go and they eat their own meal, others who do not eat their own meal. Some get drunk. Others are, are not able to have anything. And so what's happening, it seems, in Corinth is you have the wealthier members of the congregation basically conducting the Lord's Supper as they would a pagan feast, or, or a, I should say maybe a common fe- feast, or how they would conduct a feast in their culture. And what that would look like is you would have the wealthy individual who'd be seated at the table and they would it would be very clear their placement if you go into some eastern cultures you can still find this sort of thing still being practiced so the the homeowner the prestigious ones would sit around the table and they'd have the better portions of the meal the people who are lesser in society say the slaves uh, would be those or the servants or whoever is not so closely tied or of the same social class as those around the table would be those who would have a meal maybe on the floor, it wouldn't be as a prestigious meal, certainly. And so, what's going on in the Corinthian church is you have wealthier people shaming or making a mockery of poorer people. And Paul's saying this is not Christ. How do we come into Christ when we understand question answer 80? We understand question answer 81 and 82. What does it mean? It means that when we're displeased for our sin and we're taking hold of that one-time sacrifice of Christ, we have an understanding that I'm not worthy to be in the church. I'm not worthy to be a recipient of the Spirit. I am not worthy to have Christ Jesus. That's what it means. There's a humiliation there. Where I come to the Lord as a needy one, and he has shown his grace and mercy to me, to you, to us. And he's been gracious enough to give us his spirit so that we are those who respond to the message of the gospel in faith. And so when people say the Reformed faith is so impersonal, the Reformed faith doesn't really confer anything that's hopeful. How is that not hopeful is my response. How is it not hopeful that God looks upon a lowly, desperate, disgusting rebel who has done nothing but cast away who God is, slandered him, mocked him, trampled his goodness. And he says, no, here is my spirit. Here is my son. You come to the heavenly banquet table. That's what the Lord's Supper is also communicating to us. We are participants in the heavenly banquet table. What a rich privilege that we are there only because the son has laid down his life. And so when Paul is going against his church, he's saying, do you understand the gospel? Do you understand what what happened and what transpired and how unworthy you are to be in the presence of God? This isn't a privilege for God. You think it's a privilege for Christ to lay down his life and die on a cross to redeem a bunch of sinners? That was by grace. It was by his consciousness, by his mercy, this has happened. And so Paul's saying when you come together for the Lord's Supper, this isn't a celebration of your elitism. It's not a celebration of who you are or who you think you are. It's an understanding that we're coming before the Lord and called into his presence by his grace and his mercy as his redeemed. And so the thing we have to understand. That what's going on in Corinth is a very public, visible problem in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. This isn't some undercurrent thing that if you're in this church for, you know, a number of months or years, you may kind of understand what's going on. This is something you walk in as a visitor, you go, whoa, this isn't right. That's the intention here. Now, when Paul says, don't you have a house to eat? Or don't you have a house to drink in? Paul's not saying, well, just get drunk at home and that's okay. Or just engage in gluttony at home, that's okay. That's not Paul's point. His point is, do you not understand there's a way you can conduct yourself outside the church and there's a way you conduct yourself in the church. It's not that Paul's saying just get drunk at home. Paul's saying, listen, we have to consciously conduct ourselves in terms of Christ. We don't take these pagan ideas and bring them into the church, and we need to war against them in our own personal life. So that's the problem what's going on here. There's a visible, public, obvious division, elitism, entitlement that's going on among some members in the church, and and Paul's saying this is problematic. Now going on here, when Paul goes on and and he talks about the nature of who we are, we go on in verse 23 where Paul now goes on and goes back to the Lord's Supper. So chapter 10, 14 through 22, he's dealing with the Lord's Supper. Here he's making these references back to the words of institution. So some individuals say, well, this is just a love feast that Paul is, is laying out here. It's not a love feast. Now maybe the Corinthians don't see this as really something distinct with the Lord's Supper, but Paul does. And Paul's talking about how the church conducts itself and saying, listen, what happened when the Lord uh, instituted the Lord's Supper? He called attention to himself. Rightly, he is God. He is the sacrifice. And so Paul's calling to our attention the remembrance. Now we've talked about Zwingli having remembrance as merely a sentimental view. As reformed, We're not uncomfortable with the language remembrance and the words of institution. We are called to think about our lives in terms of Christ. This is our calling. This is our invitation. And as Paul writes this to the church, he invites us to think about this night. What do we have in the context of the Lord's Supper? A commentator reminded me and went back and, and read that and read the institution. You know the disciples saying, well, I'm better. No, I'm better. No, I'm more prestigious. No, I'm one who's more worthy, right? Right in the midst of it. And so Paul's saying, you're doing exactly what the disciples did, what Christ rebuked them for and said, look, this is what the pagans fight about. We need to understand who we are in Christ. That's what Paul's calling our attention to. He wants us to think about that one-time sacrifice of Christ. And yes, I'm going to keep repeating that language. The one-time sacrifice of Christ that makes us worthy. It does not need to be redone. And so in terms of who can come to this table, well, it's those who are conscious of of who they are, that that we're sinners, we need Christ, Uh, we understand that we're called to live out the gospel, Uh, we're going to struggle to do so, but in the power of Christ, Uh, As question answer 114 puts it so well, we're going to make small beginnings, not according to one of the commands, but all the commands of God, right? Small beginnings. We're we're going to grow. We're going to make progress. God's going to continue to work in us. The call is for us to have this humiliation before our Savior and understanding we're only redeemed and made alive in Him and to have that true joy and peace that flows from it. So going on then to our last point, what about the hypocrites in 82? Now a hypocrite, uh, sometimes we don't always understand what this word means, but hypocrite just simply means play actor. Uh, It comes from the plays where where someone's an actor, they're playing a part. Uh, So a hypocrite would be someone who professes Christ, has no desire to live out the gospel. Uh, So it's merely just a a formal uh, thing that's going on in the person's life. And so the the catechism is saying we have to do our best uh, to discern who's a hypocrite, who's not, as we go forward in the administration of the Lord's Supper. Now we might say, what's the big deal? Why does this matter? And this is where we we get kind of scared in terms of the Lord's Supper. When you skip down to verse 30, where it says, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So we read this and we say, we need to be very careful with the Lord's Supper and what's going on. Now, I do grant we shouldn't be willy-nilly and careless with it, but sometimes we can be so guarded and so careful uh, that that we become fearful of the meal rather than seeing the the joy that it's intended to communicate, the solemnness it's intended to communicate, the, the humility it's intended to communicate, and the life. Uh, the, the assurance of truly having life and forgiveness of sins that it's intended to communicate. And so what does verse 30 mean? Well, There's a few ways this, this has been understood. Uh, I still do go with the catechism, where I do believe that in terms of the Corinthian church and, and what's going on, uh, that the Lord did do a direct intervention. Uh, and some are experiencing what, what I would say is the extreme Uh, chastising of God, just the extreme discipline removing your life. But some of the other ways people have understood this uh, some say that it's that individuals are getting involved in such drunkenness um, that they basically die of cirrhosis of the liver. Uh, Others say that Paul's speaking of the the community actually having individuals, and this is probably a view if I was going to come off with the catechism saying probably the view I'd find the most persuasive, I'm not persuaded of it, but just to lay it out so you're familiar with it, this is a view that there's actually people in the community that are so hungry and there's so much elitism going on that they're actually watching people starve to death and die in their midst without showing any Christian charity or compassion. Uh, So Paul's calling that to their attention. In other words, you are so elite, so concerned about yourself, that you're missing these four people who are literally dying and starving to death, and you could care less. So that might be something Paul's calling to their attention uh, to indict them. But I think when you go on in verses 31, 32, in terms of uh, this judging and not being condemned, uh, that the Apostle Paul is speaking more of a personal intervention of God. But whatever the case, what, what do we do? Well, we, we try to somewhat explain it away. And the reality is, is, what is Paul saying? Paul says we need to discern the body and blood of Christ. Now, Roman Catholic will turn to you and say, yes, this is why we need to discern the Eucharistic sacrifice. But, he's, but again, Paul is using sacramental language. He's not saying we need to walk up to the bread, walk up to the wine, and discern whether it's truly the body of Christ or the, the wines the blood of Christ and whether the priest really transform them into Christ. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is we need to discern the gospel. We need to ask ourselves, what does it mean to live out the gospel of Christ as his redeemed? So in terms of this, when we look at this, uh, we think again of that metonymy that we've spoken of. Remember, using one thing in the place of the other. So when we're discerning the body and blood of Christ, we're discerning Christ. So what does this mean? Well, examining, verse 28, uh, when a person is called to examine himself, this is used in the context of testing the quality of a medal. So this is basically testing the quality of our faith. What is my faith grounded in? Is my faith grounded in Christ? Do I trust in something else? Am I grounded in my Lord and Savior, right? So this is where where we're starting at a very uh, introductory level of of the self-examination, if you will. Now verse 29, he goes on, that we are to discern the body that he eats, right? So this discerning is getting us to a place where we're actually making a value judgment. That's what discernment means. You're you're valuing and making a judgment between right and wrong. So this is where you're starting to look within yourself and say, you know what? This isn't consistent with the gospel. This isn't consistent with the gospel. This really isn't living out what, what God would have me live out. I, I really need to put this to death. And I, I need to have wisdom in this. Going on in terms of discerning again, verse 31, where he says, if we have discerned ourselves, God is one who had not brought his judgment against us. So again, we, we hear this and we say, well, well, how much introspection can I do? How do I know if I'm worthy? Can I really come to the Lord's Supper? Well, I think the answer to this is that we have to look to the object of the sacrament. That's the first thing we need to do. And this is a real, I guess, concern when I interact with Roman Catholics. They're trusting in the sacrament. They're looking to the sacrament for life. This is what Hebrews is rebuking Israel. Stop looking to those sacrifices for life. They're pointing to Christ. And that's what the Lord's Supper is fundamentally pointing to. It's a call for us to bow our knee to Christ and understanding we come to the table because of what Christ has done. And we need to look at the context of Corinthians and and Corinth. They're not doing this. They're making this meal a, a, a meal of elitism and celebration of their cultural significance rather than understanding, no, we are all gathered together into one Christ. That's what we find in the context. And so Paul's saying to the Corinthian church, go back to the basics of the gospel. Go back to the basics and ask yourself, what do I believe in? My significance, who I am, my works, or am I believing in Christ? Is that where my faith is reaching into? And then, am I desiring to conform to Christ? Do I really want to, in my heart of hearts, Put to death the things within me that are contrary to Christ. And hopefully we say yes. And of course we say, man, I I struggle. That's why we come to the Lord's table, isn't it? This is why we turn to Christ again. That's what the supper is communicating to us. The people in Corinth are not doing this. And the very fact that I find it somewhat persuasive, and again, I'm not going with that view, but somewhat persuasive, there may be people in the congregation starving to death and Paul's using that as an indictment against them. That, that, that becomes something that may be possible. Now listen, you, you are so self-absorbed, you are so focused on yourself, you're not even seeing those around you in the midst of your congregation who are suffering. But it's a reminder that our Lord is real. That's fundamentally what we need to see. Our Lord is real. The sacrifice accomplished something. And so, when, when we look at this and we go back just very briefly, you say, well, then why don't little children come to the table? Or this, again, is something else that's popped up at discussions of federal vision and, and other things. Well, with our catechism and what our synod has even ruled in looking at our catechisms when this was brought uh, to a synod several years ago, the first and foremost, we need to be of an age where we discern ourselves. We, we need to be of an age where we understand who Christ is, my need for Christ, and my call to put to death the things contrary uh, to what is not the Christian walk, right? I need to have a basic understanding. I need Christ, I'm a sinner, and these are specific sins within me. I don't need to broadcast these publicly necessarily, but I need to bring these before my Lord and certainly desire to grow beyond it, right? I mean, that's, that's the call. And so, This is a thing where when somebody comes to the table, we said, hey, they need to be at a place where they can can discern this. The other thing when people say, Well, the Lord's Supper is a Passover meal. (laughs) Not according to the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul in chapter 10 has already made that allusion back to the sacrificial system. Not everyone in Israel ate of the sacrifices. The priests ate of the sacrifices. Sometimes you would have families eating of the Thanksgiving offerings where they would Bring it to the priests and eat it in the presence of God, but not the whole community. So you've got to understand that as well. There is an overlap to Passover, certainly. There's a theology of a greater exodus, but there's also a theology to the altar and that understanding that it's a bigger picture. And so in, in terms of this, it's really just an understanding when we come to the Lord's table, we need to discern who Christ is. So, yeah, there there is a call for introspection, there's no doubt. But it's not such a morbid introspection that we put ourselves in a tailspin in the Christian life so we have no hope, we have no assurance, we have no desire to turn unto Christ. That's contrary to what this meal communicates. We join together because of that one-time sacrifice of Christ. I do not make myself worthy, you do not make yourself worthy, It is Christ who has made us worthy. And as we come together for this meal, we are partaking participants of the one-time sacrifice of Christ, nourished in the power of the Spirit, tasting the blessings of the heavenly blanket. So so yes, there's, there's a solemnness, there's a humiliation, but there's also the exaltation. We are coming to the Lord's table, to the heavenly banquet, enjoying the feast of the Lamb. And you think about that picture in Revelation. When we only we say, well, what about this sacramental experience? How do we know if we come to the Lord's table? Think about that picture in Revelation. Christ serving his church. I mean, what a thing. There we are in heaven purely by the merits of Christ. There we are in heaven because Christ has brought us through the wilderness experience tolerating us putting up with us listening to our prayers seeing us as sinners brings us to the heavenly table and he serves his people what a remarkable picture of our savior if anyone accuses our god of being unjust or our god of being cruel hopefully that offends you because that's not the picture of the gospel and that's what paul's getting at with the corinthian church We need to picture and live out that gospel. What it means to live in Christ, the joy of Christ, the joy of actually putting our sin to death, which doesn't always feel so joyful. But that is joyful because we conform to our Lord more and more. We partake of that one-time sacrifice of our Lord. Let us be nourished as our Lord intends us to be nourished, living out the gospel, out of the joy and comfort of our Redeemer. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through Most Common Podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.